Hey, Connection Point Church. I hope that you are doing very well this morning. I am excited to bring this message to you. And I also just want to, again, we want to give a shout out to the studio audience. Yeah. Woohoo! We're going to try to add at the end of the service eventually that uh, Connection Point is filmed in front of a live studio audience just to give some authenticity here. Um, I do want to just give a shout out. Uh, this is a, a pretty cool Sunday because uh, we're, we are... Uh, Joey's on vacation, and usually he's running things. Brittany is usually also here. She's usually running things, and neither of them are here this morning. And so we, we called in some, uh, some short, uh, how would you say, short notice replacements uh, last night. So shout out to Clayton for, uh, for being here. And so, uh, and the Holy Spirit, because we've already had some technical problems, but they've resolved themselves in a couple of ways, which, I mean, if you know anything about technology, like we sit, we're, we're literally sitting here looking at the feed saying, this is not right. And then it switched to the right feed and nobody touched a thing except for Jesus has his hand on the button this morning. So that's very exciting to know. That yes, Jesus took the wheel. That's what that's what we know today. So I do want to just uh, go ahead and give you all the topic. We're going to be talking again about purpose. We're in Ecclesiastes, which some of you are like, we're still in Ecclesiastes, and instead we're going to be, we're still in Ecclesiastes. This is exciting. In fact, uh, you're going to begin to see now that we we've kind of getting into we're kind of getting into this book. There's some nuances here that you're going to uh, begin to appreciate, especially today. I think this is one of the most timely messages that we could possibly have. Now, I just want to remind you why we're going through this entire book, because this book is part of what we call wisdom literature. And by the way, uh, there is a genre of literature called Mesopotamian uh, wisdom literature. And it's, uh, it's Mike's favorite, Mike Nash. He reads, he's read it all twice. And, and one of the things about this, though, is you got to know it's even outside the Bible. But in the Bible, we see some of this Middle Eastern uh, this wisdom literature. And what I love about uh, Ecclesiastes specifically is that it's kind of taking us down a route to explore this topic of the purpose or meaning of life. And it does it in a way that, that most places don't do it. I kind of think of it like this. Uh, if you were to go right now on a vacation to, uh, to California and you're thinking, man, I can't wait to see Tom Cruise or whatever this. And all you see instead of Beyonce, you see forest fires and you see homeless people. And you're like, wait a second, this isn't what I came here for. This isn't what I thought I was going to get. But yet, you begin to see, okay, I, I can learn a little bit more because of this. And so, that's what Ecclesiastes does. It's taking us a route that basically says, we're going to show you a lot about what you don't want to do in life, about what you don't want to find when you're looking for meaning in life. And you're going to be able to kind of strip that stuff away, and it's going to leave us, as we go through this book, with finding true meaning. And so I just want to encourage you as you go through this to, to recognize just by being here each week and getting familiar, you're getting familiar with the Word of God. And there's going to come a time, I just want to cast some vision for you, there's going to come a time when maybe it's your children, maybe it's a coworker is really searching for meaning and is saying things like, you know what, I don't even know if God's there. I don't even know if I look around, I see oppression, I see horrible things going on, I don't even know if God is there. 
Or maybe you're going to have somebody say, you know what, I don't even know if life is worth living. What's the even, there, is there even a purpose to life? And you're going to be able to, to, to speak into them, not your own opinions. You're going to be able to speak into them words of life because you understand God's word. And it's going to be so valuable. You're going to understand uh, concepts like hevel. We talked about this every week. It's, it's smoke that most of the things we chase are smoke. They're hevel. And we're going to see concepts like under the sun, that most of us are living our lives without considering God. And so the, the author of Ecclesiastes says, you know, that when we live under the sun, everything seems to be heaven. A few weeks ago, he introduced a new idea called fearing God, and that is aligning your life as if there's really only one thing that matters, and that is that the creator created you. And if you get that right, a lot of things will fall into place. So there's a lot of reason for you to actually want to, to, to lean into this. Now today, I want to kind of hit on one of, if not the biggest problem that we see in the world today. And I'm going to start way, 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 way far, and then we're going to zero in, and you're going to begin to see, you know what, I see that in politics, I see that in uh, culture, I see that everywhere I look. And, and it's really, when we talk about meaning, we usually talk about two or three ways to, to think about meaning. The first is, is what we call uh, nihilism or, or absurdity, and it's the idea that there is no meaning, that there, there's no meaning, you can never know it, it's, it's, it's a fool's errand to even search for meaning. Well, the problem is that is that every one of us has, as, as we learned in, in the last chapter, we have this eternity set in our heart. We have this desire to have meaningful lives. And so that's not useful for us. But then some of us have what we call existentialism. We, we go down this road and you see this a lot. You'll say things like existential means that I got to find my own meaning. I'm going to find my, myself. You'll hear people say, I just need to discover, I need to know what, I need to figure out why I'm here. And, and, and the idea or the thought sometimes in existentialism is, I can make my own meaning. And maybe that's where you sometimes hear people, uh, you know what, I was meant to be a, a musician. I was meant to be, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to find this. And, want, and here's the, the, the thing that existentialism has is it's got this kind of pie-in-the-sky belief that some of us have been caught into. And that is, if I could just find my meaning, if I could find this elusive meaning that seems to be you know, hard to catch, but if I could, everything in my life would fall into place. You know, if I could just get the right job, if I could get the right, you know, just this purpose, if I could just step into this, all of a sudden, everything in life would be perfect. And we have this concept, and we see it in different ways. You see it in, uh, in, in big social systems. Uh, one of the things of communism was this idea that, you know what, we can fix everything for you, that, that we can get a system that will fix things for you. And, and you even see it in individual people's lives. If you know what, I'm going to go out and search for myself. But what I want you to see is that if we live a life that I'm going to find my own meaning, what that leads to is a big problem, okay? Now, the opposite side of this, by the way, is what we call essentialism, and that is the idea that God created meaning, that God puts meaning in it, and instead of you creating your own meaning, that God has already placed it in you. That's the opposite. But when you live an existential life, which is what I would say most of our culture lives, most of us, without thinking about it, have this idea that we could, we could step into the right life if we could just find our meaning. Now, here's the problem with existentialism. The problem is, is that 
you are not the only person on this earth. Have y'all noticed that? That you're not the only. Some of us live that way. But the, the key idea of existentialism is, if I could get my way, then I'd be happy. How many of y'all have ever thought that? If I could get my way, that's basically the meaning of existentialism. If I could just find what I want the, and, and do the things I want, then my life would be perfect. But what happens when six billion people on the planet live with a philosophy of if I could get my way, I would be happy? I will tell you, it, it breaks down in a couple of ways. We see that, that our way becomes the most important thing. And so what happens is it, it begins to destroy a lot of things that don't want to be destroyed because your way may not be my way. In fact, a lot of y'all, if that's why we're living, a lot of y'all are living wrong because I'm not getting my way all the time. And so uh, I need to stop right there. I was about to say something that my wife would disagree with. And so I'm going to move on. So that's the main thing I want us to, we see it right now in politics, that we've got half the country, doesn't matter which half you choose, saying we got to get our way or, it, or it's going to, you know, the world is going to collapse, that everything's going to collapse. And, and so it's this, I got to get my way mentality. And, and, and the, the bigger problem with this, when it comes to the search for meaning that Ecclesiastes is talking to, is you begin to see people and hear people say things like, well, how can I believe that there's a, a God when, when everywhere I look, I see just, I see oppression, I see suffering, I see bad things everywhere. How can I even think that God exists? And what that is doing is it's not only taking God out of the picture, it's taking all of our selfishness, all of our pride, all of the things that are causing the problem is we're kind of, we're, we're, we're overlooking that and we're saying, well, God must be the problem. So today I really want to show you a solution to almost every problem. And in, the, in this solution, you're also going to find that there is an ingrained meaning that God has put in his solution a way that not only will it fix a lot of the problems that we see in the world and that you experience in life, but it also is going to give you this sense of, oh, this is what life is about. And that's why I love just going through this book because it couldn't be more timely. You know, uh, uh, several times, in fact, even this week and, and in the last few weeks, I've seen this a lot, where people will come to me and they'll have a problem. It might be in their marriage or in their work. And they'll always say, you know what? If I could just fix my wife, if I could just fix this person, you know, this person is causing a lot of problems. And, and, and they look everywhere else and they think if that would just get fixed. And what they miss is that it's not a system. It's not a somebody. The problem is selfishness. And that's what I want to talk about today. Selfishness is at the root of a lot of what we are, are, are seeing today. And not only is it selfishness, but it's, it's playing out in a lot of different ways. As we go in the text, I want you to see that selfishness is taking away meaning from your life and it's causing a lot of the problems. And so there is a solution that God is going to give us in this book, in this chapter today, that I think is a powerful way for us to live, especially with the coming weeks. We're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 4. This is again the Koheleth, the preacher, who as a Solomon-like knows everything, has all this uh, experience. And he says this, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Now, under the sun is a key. Remember, when we hear that phrase, that means the, what he's talking about right now is without God. When we live life without God, I see oppression everywhere. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, there is no one to comfort them. 
And on the side of the oppressors, there was power and there was no one uh, to confront them, to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead are more fortunate than the living. We still are alive. But better than both is he who has not been and has not yet seen the evils that are done under the sun. So there's this hopelessness that sets in when we look under the sun, when we live life without God. We see, you know what, there is just this hopelessness. And when we look at life through this hopelessness, as if God isn't there, there's no one in control, what happens is we begin to see, you know what, there's oppression, there are bad things. God couldn't exist with all this oppression. What I want you to see is that oppression is really just selfishness. Oppression is selfishness. Oppression is somebody saying, I'm going to get my way with power. I'm going to get my way by, by making it happen. And, and, and so oppression is, is just another way that selfishness has crept into our society. But what happens, and we see this right now so much, is we see oppression. Have, you, have you, any of y'all seen on the news anything about oppression or about society being oppressed? I don't know. It, it's, I, I might have been able to discern a little bit of that. You know, when we look at the news, that's all it is. And here's what the society, what the culture is telling us. Well, there's oppression. That means that we've got to overthrow our oppressors. That's the way to get through this. That's what the culture is telling us, and, and some of us, even well-meaning Christians, might look at Ecclesiastes and say, oh, he's pointing out oppression. That means we've got to overthrow oppression. Now listen to me. If you are a Christ follower, if you, if you are living your life with your eyes above the sun, that God is in control of the things, you're missing the point when it comes to oppression. We recognize that oppression is a form of selfishness. And the problem that he is advocating here is not that we overthrow our oppressors. It's that we quit looking at life under the sun. His solution is not to overthrow the oppressors. It is to bring God into the conversation. And this is where even some of us as, as Christians and as Christ followers and as people who are trying to be godly and think that we're living godly, we have still entered into a discussion that is, has God nowhere in the conversation and we're thinking, yeah, maybe we need to overthrow these oppressors instead of maybe we need to bring our creator into the conversation. Remember, when you read the Bible, you will not get past this point. God is for the down and out. He is for the oppressed. He is for those who are hurting. But the solution is not to overthrow and become more oppressors because we, we all have this selfishness in us. Instead, we bring God and we take ourselves under God's authority. And we begin to, to live like this. All of a sudden, we become the ones who are called to comfort. We, be called, we begin to become, see ourselves as, you know what, rather than the solution being out there, somebody needs to take care of those oppressors. When we bring God into the equation, we look at our own life and we say, you know what? The problem is I've been looking at life without God in the equation. What I need to do is I need to make sure that I have aligned myself with God. If, if there is no God, there's, no, there's never going to be justice in this world because there will always be this oppression. But when we as Christ followers see, I see this oppression, I'm going to be the one that goes and comforts them because I'm under the authority of God. I'm going to live life under the sun. If you want to see change in this world, I'll tell you, your vote doesn't matter as much as you think. You know what's really going to impact somebody's life is if you decide, you know what, I'm going to begin living my life as someone who is under the authority of God and God has commanded me to love those who are hurting. That is where it starts with a Christian. It's always a smaller answer than what we want. We want it one big fix, but God is calling you and I to be this answer. He goes on and he's going to see selfishness in some other ways. 
He says, then I saw all the toil and all the skill and work that came from man's envy of his neighbor. He said, you know what? And we're still under the sun. He said, I've looked and I've seen that most of the people working, what are they working for? They're working because they're trying to keep up with the Joneses. They're trying to get more money uh, and they're trying to get a a car that's going to make them feel good. And, And they're looking all around and it's this envy of their neighbors. And this envy, which again is selfishness. I want what they have. It usually comes in two ways. He's going to tell us two ways. He says, this is vanity. This is hevel. This is a a smoke. It's not there. He says, the fool folds his hand and eats his own flesh. And that's a way of saying, listen, there are some people who are going to see. This is what me and my wife, we call the must be nice syndrome. Okay. It's the, the person that says, oh, wow, Mike got a new truck or John got, he got a new goat. And that way you've been getting, <laughs> John's got goats. And everybody's like, yeah, he's in, he's a biblical guy. He, he has goats and sheep and stuff. Uh, now, we, we're, we tend to look at other people, oh, they have this, and we just kind of fold our hands. That's what he said. He folds his hands, and we just say, he eats his own flesh. Oh, it must be nice. And instead of, of recognizing, man, he's worked hard. She's worked hard to get where she's at. She's been blessed in some ways. I, I, and, and having this unfairness, the fool just folds and says, you know what? I, I'll never be able to do that. God doesn't love me this. And just there's this victim mentality and this folding hands. And what he says is that you're actually eating your flesh. You are devouring yourself. You will never get ahead because this selfishness has come into this, this mindset of sloth. And by the way, the, the seven deadly sins, I think we're going to hit five of them in this, uh, just as a kind of a side note. And then he kind of balances. If you think of a scale, you've got sloth on one side, and he gives you know, what you should be going after. In verse 6, he says this, better is a handful of quietness. This might be a good uh, thing to remember. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. He says, better if you can just live a life that's going and you have the peace of God in one hand, rather than just trying to work and work and get as much as you can with two hands. He says, it's better to just go after the peace of God. Now, in verse seven, we have sloth on one side of, it must be nice. Life isn't fair. They've got more than me. Life is just not fair. The other side is this. He says, again, I saw vanity under the sun. People living not for God. People are living for themselves. And one person has no other, either son or brother, and yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches. Have you ever known someone like this? Their whole life is about getting more and more. And by the way, it's not that they don't physically have a brother or a son or a, a wife. It's that they're living life as if they don't. They're living life. I'm not working so that, you know, to build my sons up or to, to establish. I'm working just because I want stuff. I'm not considering anyone else. It says he never asked, for whom am I toiling? Why am I working this hard? Why am I depriving myself of, of, of pleasures and the enjoyment that God has given? Why am I doing this? This is vanity. And also an unhappy business. Those people are usually miserable is what he's saying. But I just want you to think about this. Envy shows its way either in sloth of, man, I'll never get there, so I'm not even going to work. Or it shows itself as, hey, I'm going to find meaning. I'm going to be the best, and and people are going to know how great I am. And you're going to try to only find meaning in your work and only find meaning in your stuff, only find meaning. And he says these are uh, the, the same coin. They're just two different sides. He says, you'll never find it is all hevel. You know, one of the things that I've been praying through, and I, you'll probably hear me talk a lot, is I believe right now in the church, there is something uh, extraordinary going on. 
In our church and every church, I think what we, there is what we would call a sifting or a winnowing. Winnowing is where they would, uh, they would throw grain into the air and the, the stuff that was not authentic would get blown away. You know, part, part of what we're seeing right now with church having to be online and, and, and a lot of things being in flux is there's a lot of us who are living our life and we, we, we were telling ourselves that, you know what, I am a godly person, my life is God first, and, and we, would, we would, were telling ourselves this. But when we begin to see how things are really living, we're, we're so, our, our blood is boiling because of oppression, because somebody's getting ahead and there's unfairness and this and that, and we're looking outwardly. And, and, and what's happening is you see churches right now that, as some would say, that, that church attendance is uh, getting less and less. I would say that there are a lot of people who thought they were Christ followers, who thought they were all in, and all of a sudden we're beginning to see, you know what, some of us, our hearts were never there. Our hearts were truly never there. The good thing is, is if you're watching this, you're probably, you know, you're still in. That's good. Good for you. Don't pat yourself on the back. That would be selfishness, though. We don't want to go there. But what I want you to see is just kind of understand there should be a warning for us that all of us right now are, are, are susceptible to, to thinking that we're the ones that, that need to control the oppression, that we're the ones that, you know what, we got to get ahead, we got to take care of this and do it ourselves. We're, there's a lot of people right now who are just giving up and saying, you know what, there's nothing I can do. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing we can do. The world is just too far gone. And what I would tell you is that even in the church, we're seeing this, is some, that we have this mindset, we might have never knew it. We have a mindset of, you know, that what is the church offering to me? What is the church giving to me? What is, you know what, now we're just online. I used to be able to drop my kids off and not have to deal with my kids for an hour. Now my kids are sitting, maybe right now your kids are sitting right there uh, distracting you. And, and all of a sudden we begin to realize, you know what, my mind shifted somewhere along the way. I began to ask, what is it, you know, what am I getting out of this? And I moved into this, this selfishness mindset. You see, here's what I want you to see with almost every problem. C.S. Lewis said that pride or selfishness is the root of all other sins. That every time you see wrath or every time you see oppression, every time you see something, you'll see it's coming from a place of selfishness. And so there's this question right at the end that kind of gives us a glimmer of hope. He says what he should have been asking is, what am I doing this for? Who am I doing this for? Could I bless somebody? Instead of just working for myself, could I bless somebody? I think that this is a good question to when it goes to what is the meaning of life. Ecclesiastes has kind of given us these, these glimmers of when I'm under the sun, what I should be asking is, who am I doing this for? You know, I've got my kids, but all my work is pulling me away from them. I'm not really sharing my life. I'm not being able to do what I, what I might be telling myself. And all of a sudden we see Maybe I am the chaff that is being blown away and I need to ground in something else. And that's where we get to verse 9. This is what verse 9 says. Two are better than one. And this may seem out of place, but understand with the context of selfishness, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their work, for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe is him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Back in the day uh, when they would be out and there wasn't a fire around, this was the strategy as people would huddle together and sleep together. Uh, and uh, and it, so it says, how can one keep warm together? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, 
two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So we get this glimpse above the sun. This is what a godly life should look like. This is what someone who, who is seeing the oppression, is seeing the toil, is seeing the selfishness everywhere. And we begin to say, you know what? You know what would be better than me going after what I want? You know what is better than one? is two. What if I were to begin living my life under the sun? That means that I go after unity. Because here's what the key idea I want you to see. Unity is the solution to all of these problems. And, and, and we, we're missing this right now in our society, in this country, we're missing this. The solution to greed, laziness, oppression, envy, pride is unity. And in the church, it has to start there. It has to start. And so when he gives us this glimpse, we've been under the sun seeing all the problems, and then he lifts us above the sun, and what does he point to? He doesn't give us a Sunday school answer of, of just pray to God and everything will be okay. Instead, he says, no, you've got to unite together. And this is, this is such a big deal. You've got to bring God into the picture under authority and you unite under the authority of God. That is implicit in this. You bring God into the picture. That's step one is you bring God into the picture. But then instead of you saying, this is what I think about God, this is what I think about God, we recognize, you know what, God has spoken. We align ourselves to God and we unite under God's word. And we begin to ask questions. Am I using my money for, for me or to bless others? Am I using my time for me or to bless others? Here's what I love about this idea of unity being the solution to everything. Do you know that there was one prayer that Jesus prayed that you could actually answer for Jesus? You are the answer to Jesus's one prayer. I want to move us now to John chapter 17. In John, uh, in John chapter 17, Jesus actually prays for you and I. He says this, he says, I do not ask for these only, meaning the people that are with him 2,000 years ago, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That is us. That is those who have, of us who have heard the word who's been shared and shared and shared, and now it gets to us. And so this prayer is about to be for you and me. This is what Jesus wants out of you and I. That they may all be, in the studio audience, let's say this together. They may all be one. One. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. How is the world going to see the hope and they're not going to say, it was better that I, I be dead, like, they just, like Ecclesiastes, the author sees. You know, if we live life under the sun with hopelessness and wishing that we weren't even alive, Jesus says, listen, there's another way. If we are unified, people are going to look to us and say, you know what? There's something there. God is doing something there. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and that you loved them even as you love them. How is the world going to know that they are loved by God? If Christ followers are united together and love one another. Such a powerful, powerful answer. This idea of unity being the solution. When all of us right now want our candidate to win. And by the way, I don't know if y'all heard, there's an election in two weeks. Y'all know that? Yeah, there is. You probably haven't seen it on the news, but trust me, there's an election coming up. And here's, here's what I want you to hear. There's this election coming up and there's more division and we hear this all the time. And even in the church, I want you to just realize that the church is more divided because we have taken our eyes 
out from over the sun and under the sun. And every single political discussion that I've heard or I've been a part of, no one has mentioned, you know what, God is in control of all things. I'm just so excited about what God is doing. I'm so excited that, that no matter who is president, we have a king. I'm so excited about this. I haven't heard that one time in the discussion. No one is pointing to unity. What if in the next two weeks, what if Connection Point Church, what if you listening to this said, you know what, I'm no longer going to be for two, the next two weeks, I don't care how you vote, but I'm not going to, to vote as a Republican or Democrat. I'm going to vote as a Christian. And every discussion I have is not going to be one that, that leads me to hopelessness. Because if that's the case, you've taken God out of the picture. Every discussion I have, even about politics, is going to point people to the unity that we have as Christians and say, listen, I know in this country there's, there's hurt people and there's here. Let me tell you how this gets fixed. If we decide, you know what, God has given us all a purpose. God has, has given us a, a call to love one another, and we are going to love one another because he first loved us. That's what we call the gospel. Jesus Christ gave his life for his enemies, people that were cursing. And he said, Father, I forgive them. Yet many of us won't even forgive somebody who's never even, we've never even met, or, or they said one thing on a social media, and we can't, and it's such a root of bitterness because we have taken God out of the picture. My vision for us is what if for two weeks your life was all about unity? And maybe that means you get off of social media. Maybe it means you get off the news. But I, what I want, instead of you, uh, your blood boiling every time you meet someone with a different opinion, what if that drew you? You know what? I want to talk about the love of Jesus. What if you were as vocal and as passionate? What if your, your excitement and your, your angst got as much about talking about Jesus over the next two weeks than thinking about this election? There is such an opportunity here for us as a church. And in Ecclesiastes, it's no secret it's no, why this would start now. God has given us the perfect chapter, I believe, for the perfect time. If there's any time that unity could change the world, it starts with us, your coworkers, your family, the people that right now, they may not even be talking to you. I just want to encourage you. What if you brought unity into discussion and you remembered Jesus Christ called you and I to be unified. That was his one prayer that you and I could answer. Let's pray. Lord, over the next few weeks, as we get caught up in this world, living under the sun, as many of us will ride the, the news, whether it's business news of, of how our jobs are going, this and that, and we'll think that there's a man out there, maybe a president or a, a senator, maybe there's somebody that's going to fix this for us. And we're looking everywhere about who's the problem and who's going to fix this. Lord, the first thing that I hope happens is that you begin to reveal yourself so that we're no longer living under the sun. And every single one of us as Christ followers begins to draw you into every conversation, align our lives in every way to say, you know what? We have hope because we have a God that loves us so much that he entered into his own creation so that he could reveal himself. And Lord, I pray that as we get caught up in the, in the news, as we get caught up in, in, in this selfishness and this jealousy of I want this or I can't do this, instead I pray we'll look at ourselves and we'll say, you know what? It starts with me. It starts with a heart of forgiveness. It starts with me saying, I need to be someone who has aligned myself to God and not to a party, not to an idea, but instead to a Savior. And Lord, your promise 
If this church, if just Connection Point Church would start, I believe it would begin to change the world. If we would just say, you know what, we are going to unite ourselves so that when the world looks at us, they're going to know there's something more to this life. There is a meaning. And we're going to begin to, to have a heart of serving. Who could I serve? Lord, we're going to live lives of joy. We're going to live lives of meaning because we are not living lives for ourselves, but instead we are living life above the sun with our Savior. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.